You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. I am I'm, I'm thankful to be here with you guys this morning to uh, continue your series on the, the portraits of Jesus and the conversations that he has. And as we read today, uh, Jesus is talking to us about entering into the kingdom. Uh, and for Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom is a really important aspect. Uh, over 50 times the kingdom is mentioned. Now, the, the kingdom is mentioned as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, Um, and there are various reasons why Matthew chooses the kingdom of heaven, but the kingdom for Matthew is important. And this morning, as we look at this conversation that Jesus is having, um, we're going to see why it's so important to enter into the kingdom. But before we go back into our text, I I, I wonder if you guys remember uh, the Klondike Bart commercials. You guys remember? What would you do? I, I thought about singing it, but I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to say it. What would you do for a Klondike bar, right? And I went like any good 30-year-old pastor would do. I went to YouTube, right? And I just, it's like I just needed to refresh myself. Like what would people do for a Klondike bar? And, uh, and these are some of the things that people do for an ice cream. Uh, they pretend to be chickens. Uh, two grown men who are bodybuilders, will play patty cake. Um, yeah, that, that one was really interesting. An adult male would wax his chest hair. A husband will put away his dirty dishes. Uh, professionals outside of their offices would uh, will make monkey noises. And then lastly, sorry about that. And then lastly, people will imitate their dogs. So we learn that... Adults, especially Americans, will do pretty much anything for a Klondike bar. Um, but the question this morning is not what will we do for a Klondike bar, but what will we do to enter into the kingdom? What will we do to enter into the kingdom? What is eternal life worth to us? What is eternal life worth to us? Or better yet, the question is, what is Jesus asking us to do? to enter into the kingdom. And for us to understand that, we have to look at our text. And I know we just read it, but it's three verses. We'll just read it one more time. And it says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now, uh, today we're going to talk about the cost of holiness. This is what we need to enter into the kingdom. But before we talk about holiness or godliness or sanctification. These are all words that I'm going to use this morning, uh, though scripturally there are some variances. I'm going to use them synonymous to one another. 
But before we talk about that, we need to have a definition for what holiness is and what sanctification is. So here's a, a definition that I'll give you. Holiness or sanctification is the Holy Spirit wrought. Wrought meaning Holy Spirit worked out manifestation of Christ's righteousness in a believer's internal, meaning thoughts and desires, and external, their words and their actions, life unto the glory of God. So let me just read that one more time. Holiness or sanctification is the Holy Spirit wrought manifestation of Christ's righteousness in a believer's internal and external life unto the glory of God. Now, if you're like my wife and you're like Edgardo, you're using way too many words to explain one concept. Let me see if I can give us a more simpler definition. Holiness is the progressive work of the Spirit in conforming our whole being, head, heart, and hands into the image of Christ. Holiness is the progressive work of the Spirit in conforming our whole being into the image of Christ. So that's going to be our definitions of what sanctification or what holiness is all about. So having a definition, we now need to, I'm going to lay down some five doctrinal truths that I don't have the time to explain or expand on, but we need to hear them to understand rightly our text this morning. So as I go through these rules and that question, those texts that you can send to your pastors, if you are like, hey, rule number one didn't make sense to me. Like, this is a great question to connect with your pastors about. So here are five rules, theological rules that we need to ground ourselves as we talk about what holiness or sanctification is. So rule number one, we must understand that sanctification is the work of our triune God. The Bible says that God sanctifies us in Christ by the Holy Spirit. So that's the first rule. It is the work of our triune God. Second rule, we must positionally be in Christ to progressively grow into the image of Christ. Meaning we must be justified to then be sanctified. We have to be in Christ to grow into the image of Christ. Third rule, we are not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. And this rule actually guards us from two different ends. It guards us from legalism and antinomianism, meaning it guards us from legalism, meaning you earn your way into heaven. You work out your way into heaven. And we're not saying that. You're not saved by your good works. But it also guards us from antinomianism, literally meaning a word, no law. These are people who say, well, I'm saved by grace. I can just do whatever I want to do. And they answer when Paul says, should we keep on sinning? And they say, yeah, we should. That, it guards us from that because we are saved for good works. And then the, the, fourth, the, the fourth rule is that we must be spirit-empowered and humanly driven unto holiness. So we work out our salvation with fear and trembling while knowing that God is working in us. There's a du duality to our sanctification. We work it out, but God is working in us. Uh, I love what Pastor John Piper says about this. He says, there is nothing passive about my will when sin comes out of the bushes. I don't lie down and wait for a miracle. I act the miracle. So in a sense, we 
must work out our sanctification, and yet the Holy Spirit's working that in us. And here's your final rule. The fifth rule is that we must strive for holiness, not for the goal of union with Christ, but rather for communion with Christ. All right, so if you're saved by grace, you are declared righteous in the sight of the Lord, and you are united to Jesus. And as a believer, as you grow in Christ, you're not growing in that union. You're actually growing in your communion. So here, let me give you an illustration. You can't, if you're married, be more or less married. You're just married. But in your marriage, you can have a stronger or weaker relationship with your spouse. In union, being, being uh, declared righteous by faith unites us to Jesus. You can't be more or less united to Jesus. But your sanctification the way you're progressively being turned and changed into the image of Christ will grow you, will grow your communion with Christ. So I know those are five big rules, but we had to lay those down because if not, we'll actually get a wrong impression of what our text is actually asking of us today. So with that said, let's turn to our text, right? And and we, in verse seven, we read, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. So the first thing we learn about our text is we learn what is the enemy of holiness, the enemy of holiness. And here, the enemy of holiness is sin or temptation to sin. Uh, But Jesus not only just tells us who this enemy is, he actually diagnoses this enemy. And we learn three things about this enemy. We learn that this enemy is external from, to us, that this enemy is necessary, and we learn that this enemy is to be judged, right? So, uh, and, and all of these three things are really important. Let's start with the external aspect. Uh, about three years ago uh, in October, um, I started meeting with a, with a counselor. Just, I, I, just needed, I just needed some help. Like, uh, I love what, what Clint said, right? We, the church is a safe place. And, and, I, and I just needed to walk along with someone just to get some help. And he brought me to this text in Matthew 18. And he, and he showed me like, hey, this enemy is external. It's from the world. And for this, this was like a pivotal change for me in my understanding of like what sanctification is. Because it allowed me to see that scripture actually talks about two different types of temptation. One that is external, like we have here in our text, but one that's also internal. So if you, if you can, or if, you, if you'd like to, I think it's going to be on the screen. Let's, let's look at what James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15 says. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, for, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So here in James, what we see is this internal temptation that comes from our fleshly and worldly desires. And like like bait, it lures us in into death. Right? So in James, we see an internal temptation, but in our passage, we, we see, an, is that better? 
listen, I'm, I'm Hispanic. I can, I can scream it out. <laughs> uh, is that, is that, is that, all right, awesome. All right. So, right, so we have an internal temptation, and now we have an external temptation. But this external temptation, we're told in the first letter of John, look at what he says. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God desire, abides forever. So here in 1 John, the temptations are from the world and the world has its desires. But the question for us is, can we change the world's desires? Can we long and pray for the world to just become Christianized? Can we change the fallen world? And, and, and the answer is clearly no. We can't change the world that for John, for John is under the dominion of Satan. He, and he's not talking about the created world. The created world for John is good, created by God. But here, the darkness of the world is influenced by Satan. And we can't change Satan's desires. John tells us that he is the father of lies. He's a deceiver. He is a murderer. And we are not going to change his perspective on the world. But, but why is this important for us this morning? To have this distinction between an internal and external temptation. Well, here, let me see if I can give you a personal illustration. Uh, uh, before I came to faith, I came to faith later on in my life. Before I came to faith, my big, biggest vice, my biggest struggle was sexual sin. And when I came to faith, one of my prayers was, Lord, can you just remove the Victoria's Secret ads? Lord, can you like do away with short skirts and tight pants? Lord, can you just like make, literally like make me blind? And in one way, that's an impossible prayer request because the world in it of itself won't change. But understanding that there are internal desires, I can ask the Lord, Lord, give me eyes to see rightly. And, and this is how sanctification works. Because most of the time, we think we are growing in holiness when we're not doing something. And that's such a, such a bad way. It's, it's a half-hearted way to look at our growth. It, it, it would be like this. Hey, Gardo, how is your marriage life doing? Well, I didn't cheat on my wife. Like, that's like, okay, I did not do something. That's great. You didn't cheat on her. But did you do the other side of loving? Did you serve her? Did you love her? Did you care for her? And that's what Paul and and all of scripture is asking us to put off, but then put on. It, 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 in our discipleship, we have to ask, hey, how did you do in this area of, your, of life? But then ask, did you do the inverse? Were you not angry, but were you joyful? Were you not, I, I don't know, did you, did you not steal and did you give, right? Like we have to know, and when we know these external temptations that are there, we can work in the internal heart we can, be, we can ask and be with the psalmist who says, I will delight myself in the Lord and he will give me the desires of my heart. You see, I can't change the desires that are external to me, but I can change the desires that are internal to me. And the way that I do that is by delighting myself in the Lord. All right, so, so these temptations are external, but they're also necessary, we're told in this passage. 
Now, Jesus, being Jesus, just left it there. He just says, these temptations are necessary. And you're like, Jesus, why are these temptations necessary? And if you, I wish like, you know, like Peter always asked out something, like, wouldn't that be a great, like, Peter, why didn't you ask, like, why were these temptations necessary? Because we're not told a reason. It's just, they are necessary. Now, I, I think we can, in, in, in line with scripture, I think I can give you two reasons why I think temptations are necessary. And the first one actually comes from uh, for, uh, the, the book of Corinthians, in the first letter to the Corinthians. And Paul, he's writing to the church in Corinth, and they're dealing with some factions. They're dealing with some divisions over the Lord's Supper. And, and look at what Paul writes to, to, to the church. He says, I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Paul says that these factions are there so that those who are genuine believers may be recognized. So one reason why we have temptations and why we have divisions is actually so that we can see who are believers and who are not. And this isn't even a, 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 a distinct thought to just the Apostle Paul. So John, in, in the first letter of John, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. John acknowledged that those who claimed to be Christians who were in the confines of the church, they left, they followed those temptations, and it proved that they were not of us. It proved who were God's people and who were not God's people. So one reason we can have temptations, it actually divides. It lets us know who is in Christ and who is not. And another reason that we can deduce from Scripture is that it actually reveals where our hearts and where our loves are. If having these temptations there will allow us to see where our love is. Listen to what Jesus taught over and over again to his disciples. It says, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Or whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Or if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Or if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandment and abide in his love. Obedience to the commandments of God and the rejection of worldly external temptations actually proves where our love is. So temptations are necessary, I think, in light of what scripture teaches us because it will reveal to us who are our brothers and sisters, but it will also reveal to us where are our loves. Do we love Jesus? Now, I say all that, and I'm with the reformer John Calvin, where he just, this is in his commentary on Matthew, he says this, it is our duty to think and speak with the deepest reverence of the secret purposes of God, of which this, of which this is one, that the world must be disturbed by offenses. Really, what he says is, why is it necessary? It's a secret of God. So, I mean, I've given you two reasons, and I'm at the end, like, Jesus just says they're necessary, right? So, so these temptations are external. They're necessary. And then the last one I'm talking about this, this enemy of holiness is that this temptation will be judged. Temptations won't have the final victory over believers. We, we read twice in verse seven, we read, woe, woe to the 
world and woe to the individual by whom these temptations come. It, it teaches us that there will come a day when temptations will be no more, when the influence of Satan will be no more, when sinners will be no more. And even though the external temptations in this current age are present and necessary, they don't last forever. At the return of Christ, they will be judged and be done away with. Revelation tells us that death shall be no more, neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, because the former things of which temptations is one will be done away. They will pass away. And not only will the temptations pass away, the text actually tells us that the one who brings these temptations will pass away. They are a woe unto them. So what can we take away from this? I, I, I would just say, from this, from this point, we ought to watch our words, our actions, and our thoughts. May they never be a stumbling block of temptation to someone. May your conscience, when you stand before the Lord, be clean knowing that you didn't lead people onto sin. Jesus, Jesus does not take those who lead his faithful unto sin lightly. If, if we actually, we, if we jump one, just one verse in Matthew 18, chapter six, look at what Jesus says sternly to those who lead others unto sin. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. And, and brothers, we actually recognize this judgment as for what it is. We realize it for what it is when we understand that what Jesus is describing, this millstone and being thrown into the depths of the sea, that that is better. That is better than what is to come. That the true judgment will be, that's going to be levied, is going to be harder and stricter than what he actually describes. He does not take leading people unto sin lightly. I love how Juan Puritan says it. He says, the irresistible, irrevocable doom of the great judge will sink sooner and surer and bind faster than a millstone hanged about the neck. Jesus' judgment, his realized and true judgment, is going to be worse <laughs> than having your neck with a millstone around it and being thrown into the sea. Oh, may, may our thoughts, our words, and our actions never lead anyone to sin. So that's the enemy of holiness. But now we can turn and look at the cost of holiness, right? We read in verse eight and nine, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So again, the question comes back around, what would we do to enter into the kingdom of God? What is Jesus asking us to do to enter into life? 
And according to verse 8 and 9, he's calling us to some radical, radical holiness. He's exhorting us to take anything and everything that would hinder us from entering into life and to do away with it. He's beckoning us to life, a life that daily kills sin. I think Christians have become too passive. Jesus is actually calling Christians onto the right type of violence, a violence that would kill sin in themselves. Jesus is summoning us to get rid of sin, knowing that if we don't get rid of sin, sin will get rid of us. Jesus calls us to cast away sin, knowing that if we don't cast away sin, sin will cast us into the hell of fire. Church, the Christian life is a life of violence against sin. And, and, and maybe you caught it in the actual text because there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a play here. You see, if we will either do violence on sin or sin will do violence on us. We either cast away sin or we are thrown into the hell of fire. Like, th- th- there's a distinction here. Those who kill sin... They're described as walking into life. Those who don't kill sin, they are described as thrown into the hell of fire. If you were to go through the gospel of Matthew and look at the word thrown, the majority of the time that the gospel author uses it is in light of judgment. They will be thrown into judgment. So so will we do violence to our sin? Will we radically kill that which is killing us? And church, this isn't hyperbolic language. The apostle Paul knew this. Look at what he wrote to the Romans. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Or what he told the Colossians, put to death Therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, or to the Galatians, and those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Will you do war with your sin? Will you kill it? Will you crucify it? Because if not, it will kill you. It will cast you out. Now, holiness comes at a cost. And now I'm sure after hearing that, you're like, yeah, I get it. Holiness is hard. And that's, while that statement is true, that's not even what I'm arguing right now. Holiness is hard, but what I'm arguing is that holiness actually comes at a cost. So here are some things that it will cost you. Holiness will cost you acceptance. John 15, verse 19, it says, If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Holiness will cost you acceptance. It will also cost you your relationships. 
Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemy will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Are you willing to lose relationships for the sake of holiness? It will also cost you security. I mean, if there is, um, you know, sometimes there's like books that are put together, like promises of God. Like here is a promise of God, okay? Second Timothy chapter three, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ, Jesus will be persecuted. Man, what a great promise. <laughs> if you seek a godly life, persecution's coming for you. That's what, that's what the scriptures teach us. It will cost you security. And then the last thing, persecution, uh, 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 holiness will cost you respect. First Peter chapter four, for the time that is past, sorry, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry with respect to this they are surprised when you do not join them in the food in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you what peter is saying the gentiles they're living this worldly life and when you reject doing what they are doing they will malign you they will be surprised they don't like what do you mean what do you mean you don't want to join our drunkenness What do you mean you don't want to join our orgies? What do you mean? (laughs) They're surprised by this. And they will malign you. Are you willing to pay the cost of holiness? But we we don't do this alone. We look to our Savior. It's not this what Jesus suffered for you and for me. Aren't we called to walk in the steps of our Savior? Hebrews tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured shame. You have to set the joy. You have to set the better before you if you are going to be willing to pay the cost of holiness. I love Acts 5 when the apostles have just gotten beaten and they're like, hey, you need to stop preaching the gospel. Like, how would you react to getting, like, beaten? Well, this is how the, the apostles reacted. They said, they rejoiced knowing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Jesus Christ. When you lose friendships, when you lose respect, when you lose acceptance, will you not just turn your head down and wallow, but will you rejoice knowing that for the sake of Holiness, for the sake of Christ, you are counted worthy to suffer for him. Because that's, that's the heart of rejoicing. That's the heart of counting the cost of holiness. So we've looked, at, we've looked at the enemy of holiness, the cost of holiness. And lastly, we'll look at the reward of holiness. Uh, C.S. Lewis once remarked, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are 
half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. What would make us strive for holiness? What, what would make us want to wage war against sin? Because there is something better. There is something better. Uh, now, I don't know if you guys remember, at the beginning of the sermon, I said that the ultimate aim of holiness, of sanctification, is our communion with God, right? That, that is its ultimate aim. But that isn't the only aim that sanctification has. Here, according to our passage, sanctification allows us to enter into the kingdom, to enter into eternal life, right? So, we, we looked at what Jesus said, that it is better for this other judgment to come than the true judgment. But here he also uses this word better. He argues that it is better to enter life lame, crippled, and battered from waging war against sin than to pristinely be thrown into hell. So accord, according to our text, the reward of holiness is life. It's entering in, into the kingdom of God. Now, one of my, it's interesting, I was talking to Kevin a little, a little earlier. He's like, I love the Puritans. He's like, I, I read all of John Bunyan. I'm like, really, that's probably like Pilgrim's Progress. <laughs> no, but the Puritans are great, okay? And uh, one of my favorite sermons is by a, a Puritan in the 17th century. And, and also the Puritans were great, and they also had the best sermon titles. I think we fall short. We need to step our game up, pastors. Right? Like the Puritans had great sermon titles. And here is, the ser I love this sermon. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection uh, by Pastor Thomas Chalmers. And, and, and addressing sin, this is what he writes. He says, the love of God and the love of the world are two affections not merely in a state of rivalship, but in a state of enmity, and that's so irreconcilable that they cannot dwell together in the same bosom. In layman's term, what he's saying is that we cannot have two loves. <laughs> and those loves, the love of the world and the love of God are at enmity with one another, and the way one expels sin is by having a greater love having a greater thing to look at, having a greater reward. We can't cast out sin by sheer willpower. Listen, I, I just, I have a five-week-old daughter. We have three, and things are busy in, in life right now. And, and I keep telling my wife, I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to get in shape. And I'm like, when? Right, we're waking up every three hours. I'm so tired. I don't want to look at the gym at all. Like, I just like, give me the Big Mac. Let's do this thing, right? We don't, like, we don't get better by sheer willpower. We get better by, by changing our loves. I have to love being healthier more than I love the Big Mac. I have to love wanting to be in great shape for my kids more than I enjoy the, 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 the comfort and easy, easiness of just going out to eat. We change our lives by our loves. So here are a couple questions for you. Is, do you find the kingdom better than the temptations? 
Is, is life better to you than hell? And all of these questions aren't, they're not rhetorical. You actually have to answer that. Will suffering the cost of holiness, will you find that better than suffering the cost of judgment? Is the love of God better for you than the love of sin? Would you rather enter into the kingdom or be thrown in the fire? What do you find better? Because the reward of holiness is being with God. We will see God is what Matthew 5, 8 and Hebrews 12, 14 says. We will see God. I hope that shocks you. I hope that moves you, you and I, if we walk in sanctification, being justified by grace through faith, we will see God. Is that better for you than seeing whatever the world has to offer to you? Church, let's not be half-hearted Christians fooling around in the mud pies. Let's strive, let's fight, let's discipline our bodies, and let's make every effort to kill sin and walk in holiness. Because the Bible tells us that blessed will be those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they will enter into the city. As opposed to, Revelation 22 says, those who are outside who are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who comes who loves and practices falsehood, where will you be found? Will you be found in the city partaking of the tree of life? Or will you be outside the gates because you chose a lesser love? I'll close with these two exhortations. Church, the Lord is seeking holy people. He just is. He is holy and he is Longing and making you holy. He longs for sanctified people. And it is all, it's only them, only them, Scripture tells us, that will enter the kingdom. So friend, if you are visiting today and, you're, and you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus, I just want to invite you to something better. Something more beautiful, something more rewarding, more fulfilling. Jesus is inviting you into life and into communion with him. He taught us that he came to die for you and for me so that we can have life and have it more abundantly. So don't forsake this gift. Don't forsake this offer for lesser things that the world can give you. Trust Jesus. Believe that he, that he wants what is better for you. Would you trust him for that? Now this morning, if you're not a believer that, the, the offer of something better is being extended to you. But I would be doing you an injustice if I didn't also tell you that the warning of judgment is being laid before you. The, this text specifically tells us that hell is real, that the eternal fire is real, that God's wrath is real, and that no one, no one will escape it unless we are found in Jesus Christ by faith unless you allow Jesus to work in you and to kill your sin, sin will drag you into hell. But the Lord, 
the Lord is calling for something better for you. He is calling you away from the fire and into life. Will you believe that? Will you trust that what he has for you is better? And to those who are believers here, will you find yourself struggling with sin this morning? Whatever it may be, I pray that the truths of knowing that there is an enemy that is there, that is external, that won't change, but that your internal desires can change by, des- by longing, by setting your face on the Lord would help you. Whatever, whatever is weighing you down, those desires can be overcome by a greater love. And that greater love comes when you set your eyes and your gaze on Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us, it promises us that we will be transformed from one degree of glory to another when we behold the beauty of Jesus. So knowing that temptation is there, that it won't change, I hope that helps you. I hope that it helps you that, listen, holiness is hard and it will cost you. It will cost you and you just have to be willing to pay the cost. But you're willing to pay the cost because there's a greater reward. There is a better than laying out there for you and for me, and that is life eternally with our God. So whether you enter blind, lame, or crippled, or mangled, because you have done war on your sin, know that it is far better. It is far better to enter that way than to pristinely be thrown into hell. Would you pray with me?